Welcome. Good morning, Woodland Hills. I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here. Last week, if you were visiting for the first time, I said we had a pretty atypical message because I was just speaking on lament, and so I wanted to lament. In the light of this week's events, last week's lament feels like a walk in the park. And if last week's message was atypical, it will be more so. So just know that. I've never gotten up to preach with the heavy heart that I've got right now. It's, and as I'm, sure, I'm sure many of us have this, this so many emotions and it's like a powder kick. There's so much anger, there's so much pain, and so much confusion, and so much despair, and so many questions. I and a number of other uh, white pastors met, had discussions with some black and brown pastors and processing this stuff. And, and there's this, the communities, black and brown communities, there's just so much pain, so much fatigue. The repetition goes on and on. We, I heard from Richard Coleman, he's a leader in the African-American movement here in the uh, African-American community here in the Twin Cities. And, and he just, on Thursday, just bared his heart, it's this leader. And he's just, the pain, I cried through the whole thing. His, his pain and the fatigue was just visceral, palpable. And I know that some people, a lot of folks here, are, are having strong emotions about the destruction of property. I know some folks who have lost livelihoods and property in the light of the mayhem that's ensued afterwards. And there's those emotions as well. And I get, all I'll say about that is this, that... Um, well, now it's pretty clear that, that uh, the, most of the violence, the violence was instigated by and, and aggravated by outside forces coming in, uh, white supremacists, anarchists, and others who don't, they're not there for, for, for George Floyd. They just want to wreak mayhem. But to the degree that, that, that folks who are trying to stand up for George Floyd, to the degree that they were involved in that. You don't have to condone something to understand it, but you've got to understand it. Because if you don't understand it, if you just get mad at the violence without understanding the, why, the, the rage that's behind it, you'll, well, you'll just keep on repeating itself. I get the rage to some degree. I, I, if, I, if, if George Floyd was my brother, my son, my father, whatever, and no one would listen to the fact he's crying out, I can't breathe. I might break something to get someone's attention. I really wish right now, what makes this even worse is that we're in this pandemic. And if ever we need to hug one another, it's right now. <laughs> I wish we were together. Here's a community. I'm going to speak on, on racial justice, obviously. Whenever I've spoken on that, in light of some crisis that's happened, I have just so appreciated that if I can feel the support, I can see and hear and feel the support of Woodland Hills, especially the black and brown members of Woodland Hills Church, I can hear the amens, and, and that, that's so encouraging to hear that, and I need that, because whenever I speak on this, inevitably there's blowback, and I'm fine with that, but the support really feels good. And so now I can't see, I've got a few folks here, you guys got to be loud, amen, or okay, please support me here. But if, if, I can't see and hear you, but if you're feeling amen in your spirit, will you just pray that towards me so I can feel it? I just want to absorb it. I'd appreciate that. All right, so, Lord, I'm not sure what to pray, but I just pray that your word uh, is spoken here. Uh, give me your wisdom. Give me your words. 
And Holy Spirit, where I am utterly inadequate, will you make up the difference? Um, this feels way too big for me, but I'm leaning on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is, this is George Floyd. I'm sure by now everyone recognizes him. He was born in Houston, Texas 46 years ago. He was a high school standout because he's six foot, six foot six inches tall, big guy, basketball, football standout. They called him a gentle giant because he's just had this gentle demeanor to him. So large, but he's just a gentle guy. He moved to Minneapolis five years ago because he wanted to make a new start. And like 40 million other people right now in America, the coronavirus had him unemployed. On Monday, May 25th, around 8 o'clock at night, the police received a call that someone was trying to buy stuff with a phony $20 bill. And so the police were called and he was handcuffed. I didn't know this until I did further digging on it, but they had noticed that he was in medical distress. He had twice collapsed. And you can even now tell in the video as you're looking at it, he's under distress. And they called the ambulance before anything happened, before the neck was put on his, uh, before the knee was put on his neck. They knew he was in, in, in medical, medical distress and the ambulance was on the way. And not only that, but far from resisting anything, George was in the squad car already. And the next officer, Shalvin, pulled him out for reasons that are not yet clear and put him on the ground and put his neck, put his knee on his neck. And then we have this video, this god-awful video, eight minutes and 53 seconds, watching, watching this gentle giant get the life snuffed out of him. Five minutes of this, you hear him begging, please, please, I can't breathe. And yet Chauvin just keeps on pressing his knee against his neck, choking him. And the people, the bystanders are saying, get off him, you're killing him. He's in bad shape. Even one of the other officers said, it would be, should we roll him over on the side? And Chauvin says, no, we're good. Please, I can't breathe. And there again, he's calling out to his mother. By the time the ambulance got there, he was dead. The last three minutes of it, he's totally unresponsive. It, it honestly was, I think, the, the, the most cold-hearted, cruel, merciless action I've ever seen. It was just astounding. What was particularly, to me, what just stood out was Officer Chauvin, or ex-Officer Chauvin, seems to flaunt his ability to do this. He, the cameras are rolling, it's in broad daylight. People are telling him this stuff. His own officer is saying, maybe we should roll him over. And he just doesn't seem to have a care in the world. He doesn't, he doesn't even pretend to exercise the least bit of decency towards this human being. Not even just to, for the camera. He clearly believes he's above accountability. You can't get me. There's a, a sense of the system's got me. He's not worried at all. And this is an officer who's had 18 complaints against him in 19 years of service. How does that happen? And the other officers go along with it, participated in it. They helped hold him down at one point. It makes you wonder, how, wide, how widespread is that mindset in the police force? I can do what I want and nothing you can do about it. And how widespread is this utter disdain for black lives? How prevalent is that? 
And thank God the camera was rolling because it raised the question. We saw this because the camera was rolling, but how many times do we not see this? I want to be clear that, that I, 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 don't want to, I don't want a taint of police force. I, I, I have the utmost respect for police officers whenever I come upon them as I did last night. I thank them for what they're doing. I really thank them now because last night I, I live in a neighborhood that was targeted uh, for mayhem and, and the National Guard and police forces stopped those folks from coming over the bridge. Uh, and our businesses and our community is unharmed because of that. So I have utmost respect for police officers. Most, the vast majority, I'm sure, just want to keep law and order and serve and protect. But when officers like Shalvin do what they did, it does, I would think it makes their job so much harder. I, I, I have to believe that most police officers are as disgusted, maybe even more disgusted than I am and than we are at what Shalvin did. Because now they've got to go out there and represent the police force in a hostile environment. And that, this, things like this just make it so much worse. And so we be praying for the police. And they're, they're going to be under the gun again tonight and, and who knows for how long. Be praying for them. But see, the, the decency of most police officers can't be used to in any way minimize this heartless crime. As though this was a, a, some kind of a, this killing, this murder was a one-off event. Because the African-American community knows all too well that this was not a one-off event. And even worse than that, they know all too well that police officers are very rarely held accountable. Chauvin finally was charged with third-degree murder and manslaughter. For a lot of folks, that doesn't seem nearly harsh enough or quick enough, and the other three haven't even been charged yet. But see, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We didn't get here overnight. There's been a long, long, long history of this. Going back to before our country was ever founded, and this is why in the African-American community, people of color, black and brown people, there is just this... It's like, you know, when, when Cain killed Abel, the Lord says that his blood cries out from the ground. When you have injustice, the blood cries out from the ground, and we've got 400 years of blood crying out. And that's why many in the African-American community are, are, are hitting a boiling point. It is in recent history. I can't breathe, please. I can't breathe. We've heard that before. Eric Garner, 2013. Suffocated to death. He apparently was selling cigarettes illegally or something like that. We would never know about that one if it wasn't for some video. And even with the video, there was no conviction. Ahmaud Arbery, executed by vigilantes, caught on video by one of the vigilantes. But we wouldn't have seen that if it hadn't got, somehow got out because this police department sat on it. Philando Castillo, a young man who, who worked in a school just down the block from our house. Um, we wouldn't have known about that if his girlfriend didn't have the wherewithal in the middle of the whole thing to live stream it on Facebook. And again, there was no conviction. And then others we could name, Walter Scott, Michael Brown, Jamar Clark, Trayvon Martin, Oscar Grant, Freddie Gray. No convictions. And none of them would be known about if it hadn't been caught on camera. In fact, in the history of the Minneapolis Police Department, with a long, they've had racial tensions going back to however far you want to go back, there's been one conviction of a police officer. And he happens to be an African-American from Somali. And he shot a white woman. And the optics of that just are not 
very good. And so it leaves African-American people asking, why don't black lives matter enough to hold police accountable when they unjustly take our lives and take our sons' lives? See, this is nothing new. It's, it's nothing new. Uh, what's new is that there's cameras catching it. See, please, will you believe me? When he says please, he's saying, will you believe me? I'm, you're killing me. And in, in, in what, one form or another, that has been the cry of the African-American community throughout the history of America. Your white knee is on my back and we can't breathe. But it has, for the most part, fallen on deaf ears. And that's where the blood cries out. And boiling point, you hit, the, you hit a peak. <sighs> okay, the root problem here, as I see it, is you know, sometimes people say racism is America's original sin. And that's true, but you got to get more specific. Uh, the original sin of America is white supremacy. And white folks listening to this, if that, if that makes you bristle, just please, please try to lower your defenses and listen for a moment. When Europeans came over here, it was obvious to them, to most of them anyways, that white people were superior. It was just assumed. They didn't argue for it. It was just assumed. Some called it manifest destiny. It's obvious destiny that whites are supposed to rule. And when you read the literature of, of these folks in the 18th, 19th century, it just permeates their, their, their mindset. Like Charles Pierce, one of the greatest philosophers of all time, but I think probably the greatest American philosopher. I love his philosophy. I read his stuff. I came across one time, he made this comment out of nowhere, um, and this is like 1890 or so, but he says, it's, it's very apparent to everybody who cares to look at it that African Americans will never excel in higher math. They just lack the mental capacity for it. It was obvious to him. White supremacy. The country was founded on that premise. In fact, think about this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's obvious, right? All men are created equal. But realize that half of the people who signed that were owned slaves and some of them we know were abusive towards slaves like Madison nailed a slave to the barnyard door with, by his ear so all men didn't include them and didn't include women it was obvious to these folks that all men all white men all land owning white men are created equal and it was so obvious to them that they didn't even have to distinguish it from everybody else it was just duh we were founded on white supremacy doesn't need clarification. And this is woven deep into the fabric of American society. Our, our culture was established by white people. It was established for white people. And it works pretty well for white people. That's why white people are privileged. And I know that's another buzzer word that gets people all upset, white people upset. But see, here's the thing is, White superiority forms our plausibility structure. What we think is credible and what, uh, and, and what isn't. Our confidence in this system, it works for us, it works well, so we assume it works well all the time. And, and, and that shapes the way we look at the world and what we think is reasonable, what not, what's not reasonable. We have buy-in to the goodness of this system. And so when we hear, when white folks hear, when a lot of white folks anyways hear an African-American say, I can't breathe because your white knee is on my neck. Instead of believing that and entering into that and, and, and asking what can we do to, to, to resolve this, for white folks tend to have, we're socialized into having an automatic defense of the system, the goodness of the system. It's part of our self-talk. So we hear, I can't breathe. This is, system is unjust. The system doesn't work for us. There's inequity in this system. And instinctively, 
unless they've worked, worked, worked their way out of it, most white folks will instinctively think, well, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe we have a few bad apples, but overall, we have the best justice system in the world. Uh, yeah, yeah, some of it's not perfect, but black folks are making a mountain out of Mobile. Black folks are they're exaggerating. Uh, they're playing the race card. They're playing the victim card. Yeah, maybe it's not perfect, but you've got to trust the system. Otherwise, there won't be any law and order. Trust the system. Maybe worst of all, well, you know, if, if, if he hadn't passed a 20, if he didn't try to forge a $20 bill, well, then, then he, this wouldn't have happened. If he hadn't been smoking marijuana, well, then he wouldn't have got shot. If he hadn't been, in other words, they're saying that, well, they must have deserved it because the system is just. We know the system is just, right? So the God, they must deserve it. Maybe it doesn't look like that, but they deserved it. And then when Christians, you get this, Oh, you're just buying into that liberal media, the liberal spin. Look at Boyd selling out to liberal media. He's going PC on us. You're buying into identity politics. If you think that black people have a fundamentally different experience, black and brown people have a fundamentally different experience in America than, than white people, well, you're buying into identity politics. I've been hearing quite a bit of that, and I'm sure you're going to hear a lot more of it. In fact, this thing, those things I just said, were some of you thinking that? I'm talking to my fellow white folks here. Was that going on in your chatter? I, I bet some, for some folks it was. And, and, and they're totally sincere when they say this. They, they, this is what they believe. But see, it's spoken from a white perspective that is quarantined from the unjust suffering that their system causes. And they're quarantined from the suffering that their system causes because they won't believe the community that's suffering under their system. why nothing changes. That's why unarmed black men keep on getting killed unjustly. America was founded by whites and for whites and here's the thing, the structural, structural change, just because whites are the, still the dominant uh, people group in this country, nothing structural is going to change until a sufficient number of white people want it to change. Which means that if this is still going on, it's because not a sufficient number of white people wanted to change. And now maybe you can understand why the African community is just grieving and tired and enraged. But see, this tragic murder, this grotesque murder of George Floyd, it does present an opportunity here. Because, see, here is a black man that white people have got to believe. I can't breathe, you're killing me. And then he dies. So I guess he was telling the truth. Here's something you can't deny. And see, the clarity of that subverts at least a lot of that automatic, instinctive, protect the system self-talk that white people instinctively get involved in. Yeah, what about, what about, what about? Well, this kind of cuts through all that. There's no what abouts. There's no other angles. There's nothing to be said about it. He died. He was telling the truth. He should be alive today. You can't dispute that. So it, it, it challenges the plausibility structure that's premised on white superiority. And then in, in, in Shelvin, the, the, the obvious complete disregard that he has and the disdain that he has for this African American and his confidence that he's above accountability. See, in that we see with, with crystal clarity the face of white supremacy. You see, the, the same spirit of white supremacy that has always wanted to have the white knee on the black neck because black folks need to know what their place is. And their place is underneath our knee. And so Chauvin embodies the same spirit of white supremacy that led to slavery in the first place 
after the Civil War, it led to Reconstruction where uh, whites come up with ingenious ways to keep uh, African Americans from being represented in government and keeping them out of power. And we're still doing that. Same spirit that was infused in the KKK when they tried to terrorize blacks from voting so they won't be represented in government. The same spirit that was in the rent an inmate thing that went on for decades where they arrest African American for whatever reason they want and then they can rent him out to businesses and make money off of him so it's just slavery in another form. It's the same spirit that was behind Jim Crow and the same spirit that's behind mass incarceration today. It's the same spirit that's killing black folks today. And see, far from being a one-off event then, this event, because of its clarity and the, and, and the, and the, the audacity of, 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 of Chauvin, because of that, in some ways it makes this event sort of iconic. This event expresses with horrific clarity a conflict that has plagued our nation like a pandemic since before this nation was ever founded. And that very clarity provides us with an opportunity to bring about a structural change. If enough white folks will believe it. Please, I can't breathe. Will we believe that? And then enter into that. And then ask the question, what can we do to do something about that? If enough will believe. Because nothing structural in America changes unless there's a sufficient number of white people who want it to change. Which means then that the unjust killing of of, 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 of folks in the African-American community. That's not an African-American problem. It's not just an African-American community problem. That's a white problem because it's a white system that's doing it. And only white people can change that. It's on us. Which means it's on the white church. Now, I, before I say any more about white church, and I just want to say, I, got, I feel I'm supposed to speak a word to the white church, all right? So this is, white pastors, listen up. Um, I, I want to say that, first of all, there are some great white churches, white dominant churches that, that really get it and that, are, that, are, that, that do hear and believe and enter into and then walk side by side with uh, black and brown folks to, to, to work towards justice. In fact, the one positive thing in this week, this horrible week, one positive is that I got to meet, I didn't know there were so many white allies here in the Twin Cities. There's a number of pastors that are on board with this, and, and we're meeting with black and brown pastors, and, and, and it, 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 in Transform Minnesota, which is a ministry that's kind of working towards this and running these Sankofa trips, they're doing an outstanding job, so praise God for that. There is some progress being made, but on the whole, these are unfortunately the exceptions. The truth is that despite the fact that Jesus, he died on the cross, in part, this is part of the atonement, he died to tear down the walls of division that separate humanity. He died to create one new humanity. He died to bring about reconciliation of all things, despite the fact that Jesus calls us to care about the least of these and the oppressed and the marginalized and to consider them our brother. Despite that, the white church historically has turned a deaf ear to the cries of the African-American community. And the reason is because, I have to say it, the white church has, to a large degree, been contaminated with the original sin of America. And that is white supremacy. In fact, really, white Christians tend to Christianize that system-protecting self-talk that white folks instinctively resort to. Our system can't be racist. What are you talking about? We're one nation under God. America is exceptional. We're favored by God. We're godly. This is a Christian nation. Don't tell me that there's rampant injustice. And see, that self-talk, protecting the system, immunizes them from hearing the cry and believing the cry. It's easy to dismiss. Oh, there they are again. 
playing a race card or whatever. And so it's not surprising that a lot of black folks have totally given up on the, on, on the white church. Now as the white church has gotten sucked in deeper and deeper into these culture wars, so far as I can see, on the whole, thank God for exceptions, but on the whole, their sensitivity is getting less. Uh, less, less concerned about the black, brown folks, immigrants, and others. They're caught up in the culture war. Lord help us. Now see, some white pastors, I think, have, they don't speak out on this because they, they're, they're, they live in a white privilege bubble and they're quarantined from the suffering. And others don't speak out on this because they just bought into the, the racist, they don't know it maybe, but they bought into the racist ideology of, of white supremacy. But there are many others who, I, I, I think, get it to a point, they get it to a point, yeah, that's not good. And they might even say something about it. Oh, that was terrible. But they don't speak out. And they don't speak out because they know it will cost them. And it will cost them. It, 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 part of the white identity is buying into the white system. So if you challenge the system, you're challenging something that's part, they think it's part of their identity. And, and part of the white privilege is that white folks don't have to put up with much. We walk if we don't like it, so they will walk. You don't give them the gospel they want, they'll go to a different church where they'll get that version. And so, so you hold back. But see, I, to, to, about that, I just want to say two things. And, and I, I don't know what I'm talking about. We, we've lost hundreds of people on this. Uh, I'm talking from experience on here, and I'll probably lose some more after this message. But I, two, words, two words about that. One is this. this. Um, I, I just would remind white pastors in particular, but everybody, that we're, we're not called to get big. We're not called to have as many as possible at whatever cost. We're, we're, we're called to build faithful. And you can't build faithful disciples unless these disciples really get it on the inside. That we're called to love the, the least of these. Called to love the other. Called to love the, 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 the brother who maybe looks different. We're called to xenophilia, to love of the other. That's faithfulness. And Jesus tells us to count the cross. It shouldn't surprise us that you're going to have to count the cross sometimes. This is what you sign up for. You sign up for it when you're a Christian, and you certainly sign up for it when you become a pastor. Be willing to count the cross. Pay the price. So for the sake of the gospel, speak out. Speak out. For the sake of the gospel, let this get on the inside of you. For the sake of the gospel, start moving in that direction. Walking side by side with black and brown brothers and sisters and asking the question, what can we do to help to, 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 to eliminate this? And see, this is the time to do it. It will never get clearer than this. I don't think so. This is, this is as clear as it gets. The white plausibility structure has been challenged. It's shaking because it's run out of... There's nothing to say about this. Even the most conservative of, of, of the talk show hosts are... Rush Limbaugh even said, I, this is inexcusable. The plausibility structure has been... This is the time to speak out, to challenge that, to go further with it. And if you're not going to do it for the gospel's sake, then for the, just for the sake of human decency. Because here's the thing. If George Floyd was your father, or your son, or grandson, or your brother, you would speak out. You would speak out. If that happened to your loved one... And, which simply means if you really loved George Floyd, you'd speak out. And you'd immediately be able to cut through all that automatic system protecting self-talk that, that we tend to do. Oh, well, you know, he should have been passing a, a $20, $20 bill. You'd want to hit the guy if that was your grandson or son or father or brother. Because it's so irrelevant. He's dead, and he shouldn't be. That's all that matters. Oh. For the sake of human decency, speak out. Let it on the inside. Let it enrage you because the truth is George Floyd is your brother whom you are called to love. 
That's gospel. And so is Trayvon Martin. And so is Philando Castile. And so are all the others, every other black and brown person who's ever been unjustly abused and killed by white police. So for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of human decency, speak out. And not just once, but start moving in a mode where you're speaking out as a life. Where you really, it's really on the inside. This is the time to do it. Second thing I'll just say is, silence is complicity. If you remain silent, you bear some of the responsibility for it. In fact, and this is going to delight a lot of white folks, the truth is, the white church has to admit that this murder is at least in part on us. Because it was a failure of the white church throughout the history of this country. Failure of the white church to be the church, to, to love as Christ loves. Failure of the church to speak out against injustice. Failure of the church to live out and proclaim that one new humanity. That's what allowed us to get to this point. That's why there's so much blood crying out from the ground. And see, if a if sufficient number of white Christians had spoken out, this wouldn't have happened. Which means it happened because of us, because of the complicity, because of the silence, because of the buy-in to the system. So maybe the first act on the part of white Christians is simply to say, is to repent, to own up to it, and say, our black and brown brothers and sisters, we're sorry. We're sorry. This is, we set the table for this. With our buying into the system and our complicity and our putting our advantage and our ideology above the call of the gospel. Maybe someone will say, well, well why are you saying you're sorry? You, 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 Greg, you've spoken out. And see, that goes to another thing. White folks tend to think individualistically. Well, you're not personally responsible, so what does that past have to do with you? And this is the part that I can't get into it now, but see, that, that's... I'm a white person, and I can't divorce the meaning of that from what's happened in the past. And so I, I have to responsibly speak out, represent it, speak for it. But not only that, but I've spoken out. But I haven't... I've spoken out, but I haven't roared. And I've spoken out, but... You, to go back to last week's message, I, don't, I haven't let it in A to Z. I haven't let it in. I haven't entered into the lament full ways. I have the privilege of going so far as I want, but then I can always opt out. There's an exit button. For me, there's not if you're black or brown. And I've pressed the exit button. I've had enough. Race fatigue, whatever. So you go so far. That's why I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And I promise... to sincerely and intensely try to let that in all the way so that I will roar and stop occasionally whispering. Okay, you know, you can't change the past, but we, we can't change the future. We've got to change the future. And to do that, that happens with a decision in the present. And the decision in the present is just this. Will you believe? Will you enter in? Will you work for change? We're not trying to change the whole country. We're not trying to run the country. Not trying to, you know, take over. Not trying to make a, a new and improved kingdom, version of the kingdom of the world. But this is not about that, that. This is about a brother of ours is being suffocated to death. And what are we going to do in response to that? That's all it's about. I, I'll, I'll just give one, one final thing here. And then I'm going to ask some folks to come up here. And we're going to have a little discussion. One final objection that I'm sure some folks are thinking right now is just this. You know, we're an Anabaptist church. 
And so some folks maybe are thinking, boy, there's Boyd. He's selling out. He's getting political. He's a morally dishonest. Someone called me last night on Twitter. Um, here's the thing. The kingdom of God is really radically different from the kingdom of the world. And I believe that's the core of my being. And our job is not to be trying to be, you know, be wiser than everybody else on how to run the kingdom of the world. But the apostle Paul knew that. Right? So we look to him to really understand the nature of the kingdom of God and how it's different from the kingdom of the world. But Paul, do you know that? In Acts 22, he, some people were blaming him for this riot that broke out because it happened in response to his preaching. And so they called the authorities and the authorities were going to beat him. And then Paul says to them, well, wait, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a natural-born Roman citizen. Now in Rome, being a natural-born citizen put you, you had privilege. That was a privileged class. Almost every culture's got a privileged group. Well, that was a privileged group. And you couldn't beat a Roman citizen unless you had an official trial. And so the guy, the guard there says, well, uh, okay, he backs off. So Paul was willing to talk to a government official about his rights. He happened to have a privilege here in the country and he used it. Then in, in Acts 22, I encourage you to read it. Um, Paul and Silas are preaching and there's this uh, demonized girl who's following them and they're calling out, kind of giving him bad advertising. Paul, and she's making a lot of money for these wealthy people. She's a slave, and, and, but she has this spirit of divination and so she's making them a lot of money. Paul casts the spirit out of this girl, which means she's not making money for these guys. Now wealthy people usually have connections and these people did, so they call the magistrate to come down here and uh, uh, flog these people, throw them in the prison, which happened. They, 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 they're, they're beaten severely, it says in, in Acts 22, and they're thrown into this deepest cell. Now, the, somehow, and the text doesn't explain this, but somehow the magistrate, which was the governor, finds out that Paul is a Roman-born citizen. And so the jailer comes and says, hey, you, you're free to go. You know, it's kind of, okay, sorry. It didn't, and I don't know if Paul told him that, that he was a citizen or not, but whatever reasons. But Paul, he says, no, we're not, we're not going to leave. He's got to come down here and walk us out. He's holding the government accountable to its own rules. That doesn't violate the, the, the separation of, of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And so here's the thing. I'm a white person in America, and I've got privilege, which means I've got a voice that some other people don't have. And there's a guy in the street being suffocated unjustly by a white police officer, and maybe they won't listen to the cries of the guy being suffocated. Please, will you believe me? No, nope, I'm not going to believe you. Maybe they won't listen to the cries of the people on the, on, on the side, but they might listen to a white person. I've got a voice that others don't have, which means, and you've got a white person, a voice that others don't have, which means you have a moral responsibility to use it. If that voice can save one life, you've got a moral responsibility to use it. And if you're silent, you're complicit. So I will always stand for the kingdom of God is so different from the kingdom of this world and I'm not here to run the world. I'm just trying to save a life. What can I do to save that life? And I'm just trying to say, oh, how can, I don't want to, I live in a country. I've got two black grandsons. They're not safe. They could, if it happened to George Floyd, it could happen to them. I don't want to live in that country. And I've got some rights here. I've got a voice. How can I not use it? How can I not use it? I'll end with this and then we'll go into discussion. And it's, it'd be easy to do hopeless right now. It really would be. And here's what we got to just do. We, that song we sing about, our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. Keep, keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, Martin Luther King said that there's a moral arc to the universe and it's bent towards justice. It's, it's hard to get there. 
It's not bent real strongly, but there's an arc, and, 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 and justice will come. It gave him hope. And the way the Paul says that is in Colossians 1, when he says that God is right now at work throughout the, throughout the cosmos to reconcile all things to himself by means of the blood of the cross, by means of self-sacrificial love. There's our hope. Yeah, it takes, it, 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 these 400 years, the Spirit of God has been working in this direction. You hope it's not going to be another 400 years. But the hope is in Jesus. But it's possible to say no to it. It's possible to turn a deaf ear to it. I'm saying this is the time to say enough. Enough. All right, I'd like to ask our, our, our team to come up here. Um, and we're going to have a little discussion here. I don't know how you want to move these chairs here. Um, I'll introduce them as they're coming up. This is a lovely Shauna Bourne. All right. Sorry, I kind of baptized the stool there. I did that last week too, but at least I caught it this time. Maybe, you know, we should make a mental note, okay? Maybe I moved that a little farther away. Uh, Shauna Bourne and Cedric Baker, Oshita Moore, Elon Smith. I, thank you guys for being here today. I, I, we deeply appreciate it. Um, yeah, give them a round of applause. I can hear that. Can you hear that? Yeah? Oh, that's, that's good. All right, that's good, that's good. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you being here because uh, I know this isn't easy for you. Uh, I imagine it costs you something to have to share your experience, try to help white folks get it, and that's got to grow old. So this is a costly gift that I, I just want to acknowledge and, and, and thank you for. And I also want to say I'm sorry that we're in an environment in a country where you're more vulnerable than I am. And I'm committed to do all I can. And the church is committed to do all we can do to, to, to rectify that. So thank you for being here. Let me just start by saying, um, it's been a horrendous week. How are you doing? <laughs> kind of wide open, but how, how, how are you guys doing? Yeah, um, yeah, I can, I can go first. Um, first of all, thank you, Greg, for that, that powerful message. Um, one of the things I, I, I just really appreciate about uh, being under your leadership is that you're not afraid to go there. Um, and so um, that's one of the things that Thanks. keep me here at Woodland Hills. So um, um, I'll be honest, it's been a tough week. Yeah. Um, it's just been it's just been really really tough. I've 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 been in this in in this certain headspace around like will things ever ever change um and um i'm not holding much hope for that yeah um you know um, one of the things that um i think many of you might know because i spoke about it before is that I, I'm, I'm a principal of elementary school and um in times like this in times of crisis and, and tragedy um, you know, the principal is supposed to step up and they're supposed to give this message of hope to the community and they're supposed to give this message of hope to our, to, to our, to their staff and I, I, I honestly couldn't do that this yeah. week. Um, and my only message to my staff was, um, that I can't do that. Yeah. Um, I just really can't. So it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's really disheartening to see what happened to uh, Brother George Floyd, and to see this happen multiple, multiple, multiple times. And um, like I said, my hope for anything coming out of this, I just don't know. I hear you. That's where I'm at. 
Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. What's she doing? Um, in the words of Big Floyd, everything hurts. Mm. My heart hurts. My soul hurts. My body hurts. I'm not sleeping well. My mind hurts. Everything hurts. And um, I'm deeply, deeply angry. And as an Anabaptist, <laughs> I don't think that we do a very good job of teaching us what to do with our anger in a holy kingdom way. So I'm trying to acknowledge and v recognize that my anger is rooted in something good mm -hmm. because there is injustice. Mm -hmm. But how do I how do I navigate that anger and bring it to a place of love? I'm actively working through that. And um, but I'm also really grateful to be here because because of the stupid pandemic, like I've said to myself, like every day, don't forget there's a global pandemic. Yeah. I haven't been able to be with my black brothers and sisters and process this and grieve this. And last night in our prep time and just here, it's a gift to be, to have that validation that um, God made us black and he didn't make a mistake That's right. in making us black. That's right. Thanks, thank you. Uh, Greg, thank you for the message. And to answer your question, I'm emotionally exhausted. Yeah. I feel like I've said to some, it's like it's been a roller coaster of mm -hmm. emotions. They've kind of hit on it. You're angry, you're mad, you're concerned, you're frustrated, you're scared, all at the same time. During this week, depending on which day you caught me on and actually what hour it was, my emotions would be different. Um, I also like Delon, I was in a meeting with my executive team at work and I broke down and just cried. And it hit me that in the middle of all of this, it almost felt like it's a matter of time and the numbers are against me because of how I look. And just thinking about everyone that looks like me that's trying to navigate all of these systems, it's exhausting to continue to keep doing it. So it was just good to hear your message, mm -hmm. to, to have hope again, because this week I have wrestled and it has been rough. Yeah. And I have tried to wrestle within myself on what more can I do in the middle of all of this? So I feel like your message really gave me some hope. Praise God, thanks. Thanks for sharing. Um, I'm tired. Um, when we found out about Ahmad Arbery, I kind of went into that place of lament that we've been talking about and really just had to shut things down externally and just and because we're in a pandemic just be with my family because I just felt safe <clears throat> um, and then when I started to come back out we had a Oshita and Dan and I were on a call for a musecast prep meeting and um, she mentioned George Floyd and I hadn't because I'd been shut down I hadn't seen it and so I immediately had to go and look and I thought to myself well, I couldn't watch it. I just couldn't watch it all. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, f this time, 
this time it'll be obvious that this is wrong. Um, and you talked about that in your sermon. And then yet, as you go looking around on social media and you see different things, even that has been called into question. Like I have heard people say, well, what did he do wrong? Why, why was he trying to get over on, on the store? Why was he arrested? Was he resisted? Like, and, and I'm like, no, this, this man is dead. <laughs> And he was um, subdued. Like he, he wasn't fighting. He couldn't fight. His his hands are behind his back, and he's on the ground. And then I see this picture of these two high school seniors, white guys, reenacting it and thinking it's funny. And I, just, no, I just, I, yeah, oh. I, here locally, yes. <laughs> they go to a Christian high school, yes. and I just go, oh, Lord, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then, because I'm biracial, like, my kids, you know, are, 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 are quite white passing, but my oldest son, he gets enraged, and he gets angry, and he wants to know why. And people look at him like, why do you care? As Even if he were white, like, as if he shouldn't care. Right. But he's not all white. And so, um, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired. And I thank you for speaking out. I know. I know the blowback you get, um, yeah. but you're doing it anyway. It just shows you how, how deep that, that, that indoctrination into the goodness of the structure and even the most overwhelming evidence that it's not, it's just like there's, there's self-talk that just dismisses that. Oh, thanks for sharing that, you guys. I appreciate that. Um, I wonder if we could, if, if, if you could all share something in your experience um, where your experience of the system maybe is different than my experience of the system. Um, in what ways do I get to not have happen to me what happens to you? I, I don't know. Is there anything you can share from your experience on that? I, I can start on this one. I, I was thinking um, um, just how, as a black man that I navigate, that I feel like some people just take for granted. Mm -hmm. um, little things that I do because I've been taught even at a young age, you must be careful. You can't afford to make a mistake right. because it would be your life. And so things such as going in a grocery store, and I don't care if I'm buying a stick of gum or chapstick, I leave with a receipt and a bag mm -hmm. every time mm. now. And one of the reasons being is I don't want it to look like I'm stealing something from the store, yeah. which means yeah. that, again, you move forward, that my life could be on the line, and I'm out of here. We've seen a lot of things happen. So it's just being able to navigate a system and wanting to try to make sure that people understand we are always, black people are always trying to think for ourselves, but also think for our white counterparts at the same time, mm -hmm. and making sure that we don't get caught in a crossfire. Thanks for sharing that. Anyone else want to share? Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely piggyback off what Cedric said. Um, you know, um, you know, as as a young black boy, and and many, if not all, of our um, young black kids are we're, we're taught those things. You know. Uh, one of the things I remember my dad telling me is, you, you know, when you go in the store, take your hands out of your pocket. Yeah. Um, 
but these different mm -hmm. rules that we have to follow that um, white folks just don't have to even consider um, are some of those things. Um, and even just more personally, we, we also talk about, you know, my mom and dad have taught me that I have to work twice as hard as um, a, a white person to achieve. And um, I, always, I always tell people my twice as hard story. Um, and it, you know, a lot of these things, I, maybe because I'm in the, in the midst of um, you know, um, my profession, that many of the things that have happened during my profession come to mind. Um, but um, I, have, um, I have two principal licenses. <laughs> um, because the first one just wasn't enough. Um, so I've been a licensed principal since 2005. Um, but I just had the opportunity to, to, to um, be a principal in the building about four or five years ago um, after I took my second um, coursework. So I have two degrees sitting up that say the exact same thing from two mm -hmm. different schools. Um, and why is that? Yeah. You know, why do I have to, why do I have to have that? Because the first one wasn't enough. And so, um, you know, just things like that. Things that I think one of the biggest things that um, I feel um, is um, just how I'm perceived um, when I walk into a place. Um, I, and I go back to like when I first became a, a principal and I was greeting, this is open house, and I was greeting my families and I couldn't tell you how many of my families, white and black, because uh, um, this, this system of white supremacy, it permeates us too. Um, of I would say, hey, how you doing? I'm Dylan Smith, I'm the principal. And the response was, you're the principal? Mm -hmm. And well, because of this system of white supremacy, I don't know if you're, you're saying that because I might look young, or if you're saying that because I'm black. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but there are countless, countless uh, situations of that, of that and things like that happening where um, people are surprised that I speak so well, or they're surprised that I'm doing this, or they're surprised about that. Yeah, right, right, absolutely. Um, and until we get to a point where those things aren't surprising, um, yeah. we're going to continue to, to, to be in the mess that, that we're in. Leon, I'll tell you. You're gracious, but you're not that young, so. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore, no, no. Yeah, so, anyway, but the, the assumption that the system was predicated on, um, those assumptions about the obviousness that black folks are not going to sell in math, and they're not going to, uh, that, that's, that, that's still prevalent. Mm -hmm. it, and it, I think, helps support the structure. If we, they convince themselves that you're, that less than, uh, then, well, then anything you say, it, it's a, they're instantly insulated against you from critiquing the system. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a way of keeping yeah. Yeah, you down. Yeah. Rashida? Yeah, so I have an example from um, watching this happen in my son's life, and he was in elementary school. So we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, very progressive, very like woo-woo kind of school. They went and hugged the trees after they made maple syrup from getting <laughs> maple from the trees, like oh, that kind sweet. of school. And at the end of the year, they had this big field trip and it was some, something, like, something like Boundary Waters, which is like a, a water park amusement situation. You would never catch me there. But 
all the kids were working towards this. And I think it was like a perk of like sixth or seventh, sixth graders. It was like their last thing they could do. And my son was super excited to go. And he bought, he wanted, the silly bands, those like bracelets, those little plastic bracelets were like a big thing. He had a bunch of them he brought to school the morning of the trip to hand out to his group of friends. And he and a couple little boys and a couple other little girls, he handed them out. And they, they, this was like right before a field trip. And I'm in between two educators, so y'all know that energy right before everybody's trying to go on a field trip. They're just yeah. all, all bouncing off the walls. And they were, they were flinging the, those silly bands at each other. And, you know, girls are making some hits. The boys are making some hits. Apparently, one of the boys in my son's group flung one at a little girl, and it hit her, like, in the face. She started crying. So she goes and tells the teacher, and... She says that Tyson is the one that did it to her. And so the teacher pulls Tyson aside. My son's biracial. He has very, he has very curly, kinky hair, but all of his other features are white passing. Um, pulls, he's the only black kid in the group. Pulls Tyson aside. He's the one who's chastised. He's the one who's, to who's told he was wrong for bringing gifts to his friends, all of that. None of the other students were addressed. So then the kids are kind of gathering their things, and my son goes to this girl who's his friend to check in on her, but he says to her at some point, why did you go tell on me? Why did you say it was me? To which this little girl starts crying and says that he is bullying her. So then she goes back to that same teacher and says, Tyson's bullying me now. So then the teacher pulls Tyson aside and calls the principal. And they say to him, you cannot come on this trip because you are too aggressive. Mm -hmm. And that aggressive to a black man, to a black young boy, that is something that our men hear all the time, Absolutely. that they are someone to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. So my son stood and watched all his friends load up in the school bus on a trip that he was excited to go to, that he had earned, and they all went because the system did not care enough to protect my son and listen to my son, but they sure did. That system did listen to that little white girl. Mm -hmm. And I know this girl's family. Like, I know that they have probably, they've never even taught her to hate or to blame another, uh, blame a black person. I know, I knew that family. But there's something about the system that supports white supremacy even in our children. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just a reminder of Emmett Till. Um, you know, a white woman accuses a black boy of anything wrong. You looked at me wrong? Mm -hmm. Could be at the end of your life. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, uh, anyone else want to share anything? Okay, the other thing is, Cedric, um, you know, one of the things I think is so important here is to get a sense of context and to zoom out. I don't think you can understand this unless you understand all the stuff that went before. And, I think a lot of folks just have a, a lack of awareness of kind of all that's gone on before. What are some, maybe some things that, that have happened that have got us here? Uh, they've come to mind. Yeah, and yeah. Any of you can share what, what comes to mind. I was just thinking um, when we say systems or the system, I think people think so broadly in context and we're familiar with systems. We understand the interstate highway system. We understand internally our bodies have a system. Ultimately, the true definition of a system is that things are working together intentionally for a purpose and an intended outcome. Right. And so it's a common goal. Mm -hmm. 
and when we say system up here or systems, mm -hmm. we're saying that that same thing is happening within our community for a common goal and it is intentional. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of talked about it, and Greg, I appreciate you bringing it up. You talked about it during your message about slavery, Jim Crow. Um, we also have things such as redlining. You brought it up in education. There are systemic ways where policies, practices, and procedures have been used to support our white fellows and discriminate against our black and brown men and women. Mm -hmm. And so one you know, specific example that I can think of is redlining, yeah. where there were banks that were not, um, you can look at a map, there were banks that um, were not give loans to uh, certain people, specifically black people, in certain neighborhoods. Right. And so we think that in some of our cities that all of the black people just decided all of a sudden to go live in this neighborhood. No, there has been a systemic way of pushing and moving people into things through policies, practices, and procedures over time. So we just didn't automatically get here. Right. That there has been a dedicated approach to systems that you brought up that got us here. And I feel like that's important to highlight. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Like the the, uh, the uh, Rondo neighborhood, uh, classic case where could put that highway anywhere you want, but you got to put it right through the right black through community. The, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And it happened in what the '60s, was it? Mm-hmm. It split apart the entire community. Yep. Yeah, if I could um, piggyback off of uh, Cedric as well, just um, you know what comes to mind. I, I think you put it out eloquently, uh, Cedric, as far as the system. And we talk in education too about the system. Um, we talk all the time about like um, you know test scores, that's a big thing for us and what, you know, um, it's not a secret that um, our black and brown kids don't do as well as our white kids on tests. Um, as, as a matter of fact, Minnesota leads the nation in the education of white students and is dead last in education of black students. Seriously. Um, and and it's, uh, it, it's, just, it's, it's, it's just wild, but um, um, <clears throat> this, the, this permeates every piece of life. Yeah. So this white supremacy system, this system of racism, it permeates everything. And we do get the outcomes that it's intended to get. Yeah. And until we break these down, and there are some schools that have been able to break them down individually, but we have to understand this is all encompassing. Um, until those things are broken down, we're going to continue to see the results that we're, we see. We're going to continue to see black and brown kids performing under white kids. Um, we're going to continue to see those things. Um, the last thing I'll say was, if you, have, if you, if you haven't watched, um, um, Trevor Noah put, recently put out a post. Mm -hmm. um, it's about 18 minutes long, and it's fabulous. Mm -hmm. um, but he talks in there about... Um, you know, he, he started talking about the, um, you know, um, the, the destruction of communities and things like that as a result of what's happened here. And he talked about how um, just he, he wanted white folks to just think about what a society is. And a society is basically a contract that a group of individuals mm. agree to abide by. Yeah. Um, and um, white folks have not abided by that contract. Um, as far, when it comes to people of color. Mm -hmm. um, everything that we expect to happen for, as people of color are part of the society, they don't, they don't they're not necessarily guaranteed to us. Right. 
um, freedoms, humanity, those things aren't necessarily guaranteed to us. And so, um, in turn, some of the destruction that's been going on is uh, he views it as, well, you've torn up the contract, so why do we need to abide by the contract mm -hmm. as well? Mm -hmm. And so we're getting into some really, I mean, we've already been in some, to some really dangerous waters, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that this whole contract of humanity has not been abided by by many, many white folks. And uh, uh, as a black man, um, I've had to, me and people like me, have had to suffer the consequences of it. Yeah, and I think, it's okay. Um, part of the trickle-down, one of the trickle-down effects as it hits the individual level is, is we don't get the same benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. yeah. that people yeah. in the white yeah. community get. Mm -hmm. And um, one very clear example of that was several years ago when my children were younger and we had just, it was during the summer and we had just gotten back from a trip and so our family vehicle was dirty and um, I think part of our tabs were covered. Mm -hmm. And so I, Scott was here, my husband who's white was here at work and I got pulled over and the officer who was a woman um, was pretty aggressive, demanded to know who the children were in my vehicle, and when I said that they're mine, she didn't believe me. Um, she, is, she thought, well, at least you're the nanny, you're the paid help. And I was like, these are, these are my babies. Yeah. Um, and she had asked me to step out of the car, and I just said to her, would you please allow me to call my husband? He is just up the road. And um, she did. She allowed me to call him, and when Scott came, um, her tune totally changed. Mm -hmm completely yep. changed. When Scott came in his white privilege mm -hmm. to see what was going on with his family, she was like, you are a wonderful woman, what a beautiful family, uh, go about your way, make sure you get your car clean wow. so we can see your tabs. Wow. It was totally different. Like, mm -hmm. I wasn't given the benefit of the doubt, right. yes. and she didn't believe that my children were my children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen, mm -hmm. typically, to white people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's like our story over and over again. TC and I, my husband's white too, TC and I have this kind of contract between us that he will go first. Like if yeah. we're going to go shopping or we're going to do something when we were looking at places, he, like, that, that's him taking his white privilege and saying, I'm going to yeah. go and open the door yeah. so that my, my, my black wife and my children can come in. Right. Because that is the exact same yeah. experience that we have. Yeah. They don't believe me, but yeah. they believe him. Because right. he's white. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyone who is not confirming or not agreeing with the system is suspect. Because right? the system we know is good and true, and if you're not seeing it that way, I'm not sure about you. I mean, that's how I think it operates. You know, something occurred to me, Cedric, when you're talking about systems. You know, the thing about a system is that if it's working, you don't, don't notice it. Like, I, I never think about the highway system because it's working. You only notice it when something's wrong. You go, what's wrong with this system? I can't get to where I want to go. Mm -hmm. So we've got this, this, this reality here where it's working for the white folks. And so it's, it's fine and wonderful, but... It's not working for other folks. Yeah. And if you won't listen, if I'm in charge of the system, I've got to hear everybody, right? Because it's supposed to work for everybody. But if yeah. you have the dominant culture is not willing to listen and believe, well, then it just keeps on going on and on and on. Yeah. And it's like yeah. Einstein's saying, it, 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 insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, thinking you're going to get a different result. It just yeah. goes on and on and on. That's the despairing fatigue that so many feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, so last night, I, uh, someone had, again, got a little Twitter spat. 
and there's a lot of twitch spatting going on. Uh, but but what a person was saying, uh, they, they were mad that I wasn't uh, condemning enough of the violence, and th th that's the real issue here. Moral. And I was trying to say, well, you know, you've got to understand what's behind it. You can't just look at the, I don't, I don't condone this, but, but you've got to understand it. And the, the, he was, the response was, the person was saying, no, these are individuals making a choice. You choose to break a window, and so it's all on you. And it seems to me there's a fundamentally different way that, generally speaking, that white folks have of looking at the world in kind of a very individualistic way that is not shared by the African-American community or by brown folks. Um, uh, Oshida, would, would you like to speak about that? Like, uh, how, how do you think the perceptions are different on the part of white folks? Generally speaking, of course, you know, I don't want to mm -hmm. brand everyone the same, but... Well, those of you that know me, I use this phrase, throwing spaghetti against the wall, which means I'm actively processing a thought. So, but I think one of the theologies that we have here, one of the things that I love about Woodland is that we have a theology of a backstory, of trying to understand what happened in someone's life to get them to that place of believing something or saying something or doing something. And I think for the white community, individualism has served them super well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the system has affirmed their individualistic view. If we go all the way back to slavery, and we see plantation owners and slave owners, they were celebrated for their ingenuity, they were celebrated for their acumen, they were celebrated for their leadership in the community based on their wealth that they built off the backs of black people that they deeply dehumanized. And then we have institutions named after them, and we have statues built up for them, and we have family names that are passed down, and there's a pride behind that family name. And there's this, there this undercurring narrative that these individuals, these white individuals, or these, this, these white individual families, they have achieved and attained something because of their hard work, because of what they've done. Mm -hmm. And we need to look and celebrate them. Not ever looking at African-Americans, not yeah. looking at black people and not recognizing the good in those communities and not giving them the benefit of the doubt. And so I think that white people naturally go to that place because that's the narrative that you've been given. That you can achieve and do whatever you want and be as prosperous as you want. And so it's up to you and your choices. And then you translate that philosophy onto black and brown people yeah. for whom we never had that opportunity to be celebrated, to be individually uh, acknowledged. We were just a group of dumb chattel mm -hmm. to just do the hard work. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when the system is completely affirming that, that when these kind of things happen, it's very easy for a white person to want to go individual and look and look and look. And I think as kingdom people, we need to enter into that space then where we're encouraged to grieve and mourn and hear the collective cries yes. and say something's going on here. So how do we look at this group of people who are suffering and not try to go individual, oh, they did something wrong. That's why, I don't know, I can't speak for all of you, but that's why when the narratives start coming up, oh, he, forgery, oh, he was smoking, oh, he ran, blah, blah, blah. That is what makes it so upset because you yes. want to go individual about all the bad things about us, <laughs> but you don't want to go individual about all the good things yes. about us that we bring yes. to the table. And right. about the deficiency of the system that does right. that to you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's really good. Yeah. yeah, and that's just a whole other layer of the pain, right, that we have to live through again is when um, again, not condoning all of the outrage and the riots and the looting and all of that, the damage that's being done, but when people look at that, 
and start harping on that and forget about what the why behind it forget about the fact that there is blood crying out mm -hmm. from the ground it makes it it hurts all over again I have seen, I have seen more anger toward the damage being done to the cities than I, than I saw anger toward the murder of George Floyd. And that's hard. Yep. And so in all sincerity, I want to ask, well, then what would be acceptable? What would be acceptable? Like, what would make you hear the cry of the black community? Because it feels like uh, peaceful protests has, haven't been enough. It feels like speaking out hasn't been enough. It feels like videoing instances hasn't been enough. Taking a knee hasn't, like, all of those things have somehow been offensive. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're doing a peaceful protest, you're blocking traffic and I can't get to where I need to go. It's like there is nothing that seems to have caught people's attention to where they go, I see it, I hear it, I, I believe yeah. you, and now let's make a change together. And so I, I don't have an answer, I have the question, how would you like for this to look so that you will understand and hear and yeah. believe and then respond? Mm -hmm. yeah, Martin Luther King said that, that rioting is the language of the unheard. Yeah. And, and, um, and if your loved one is killed like that, uh, like George Floyd, um, and you won't hear me and you won't believe me, I gotta grab a megaphone and how do I get the attention of the people who can change this? And yeah, and so they, there's someone who try to disrupt the system. It's like, yeah. how do I, I'll block an intersection. I gotta, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? What about now? Please, yeah. your knee is choking us. And people get desperate. That doesn't condone violence, but man, it makes it understandable. It, it's legitimate. And if you don't want them doing this, well then, offer an alternative yeah. like listening yeah yeah mm -hmm. okay we got to wrap it up but uh let me ask this if i could um uh, if we've got a lot of folks listening here um and it's a chance to speak to folks like me uh, if, if there's one thing that you would want to say in response to this event uh to help folks like me understand to help me get on the inside to feel it on the inside to, to bring in lament what would you have to say? And you don't have to say anything, but, but if you have something you want to share, I, I would like to hear it. I have two things. So the first thing is, um, the, night, the morning my mom passed, um, she went to the ambulance, she went to the hospital in the ambulance first. My other siblings had to follow. And my, my brother was speeding to try to catch up with the ambulance to try to get to the hospital because my mom was still alive when they put her in the ambulance and a police officer pulled him over and my brother is scared for his mom and he's a big personality type and so he's exuberantly telling the officer I got to get in the like can, can we can, can you just follow me to the hospital we can do this there I got to get to the, like he's just really and the officer throws him on the ground and handcuffs him and takes my brother to jail. Mm -hmm. My brother sat in a jail cell while his mother was dying. Mm. And when my sister called and told me, because I, 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 did, I didn't know anything except that he got pulled over. I didn't know about the jail part, him being taken. But when my sister called me and said, Kenneth has just got pulled over because she could see in her car. My first thought was, God, I can't lose my mom and my brother in one night. Mm. And that is kind of the undercurrent of pain that I feel when I send my brown sons out to the world, when I go into the world, mm -hmm. when my brother and my father goes in the world. And I just, that's not right, and that's not fair. 
the other thing I want to say is that white people, you're at the place right now where you're really asking the question, what can I do? And I just really want to lovingly say, if you can Google your vacation or a great lake house, then you can really Google race and justice. And you can really do that work. And I would much rather be a partner and a journey person with you on this, through this conversation, as you process some of the things that you are learning, but I don't want to be your educator. That's an unfair place to put me because yep. the stuff is out there. Yeah. So that's, that's what I would say right now is we're not here to teach you. We are here to love you as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let us do that and yeah. you do your work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I would agree. And I want to piggyback off of what Oshita said um, and also just add that in addition to that, we need white allies. Greg, you pushed it really hard in your message, and I'm grateful that you did. Mm-hmm. If the system was going to change, if it was based on us, it would have been done already. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. So we need white allies, and specifically, we need Christian yeah. white allies. The influence that you have, and I'm with Oshita, I can't tell you specifically what you need to do. My, my request or my suggestion is for you to go through your prayer time and ask God to help you with what influence you have in your sphere and use that to make changes to some of these systems. If you have the ear of someone, say something. Mm-hmm. It may cost you maybe some of your credibility, but what you are doing is Christian and it is right. Yeah. And so I would say, please use your influence. Please use your ability to make some changes and pray to God that he shows you where that influence is because in addition to prayer, to be honest with you, you all up. I'm past prayer. We, yeah. we need action, yeah. mm-hmm. and we need prayer to lead to something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So pray and ask God to help you do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and I just want to say, because um, I hear this all the time, like, I need, to, I need people to quit saying that racism is no longer an issue, that that's something in the past and we need to get over it. Yep, we had a black president. That didn't solve racism. <laughs> like, that doesn't mean we're all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people, people are even, like, denying the fact that what happened between George Floyd and the ex-officer was race um, related. Like, it's like there is too much of uh, no but, 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 but. Mm-hmm. Like, just believe mm-hmm. and check check your thought process. Take that before the Lord. If when you see something like that, your first thought is an oh dear God, that's a brother who is now long, no longer with us. If your first thought is what did he do or if all those other narratives or that's not the America I know or but I have black friends so that can't be, that would never be me like no like I appreciate all of that but at the same time it's time to really get honest with ourselves mm-hmm. and our thought processes and their own and their own biases that we have um, and and take that to the Lord and allow him to show you maybe where you're blind mm-hmm. to being a contributor to some of this yeah yeah I think I, I would echo everything that was said here the, you know the first things I was thinking was educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, 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 it's not black people or people of color's job to educate you. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, like what she just said, you know, you can Google, <laughs> you can Google your lake house, you can Google anything. So, uh, <laughs> I don't Google lake house. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Ed- educate yourself on what's going on. I mean, some of the, some of the um, just ignorance and the lack of experience is just, it's, it's, 
it's it's crazy. Um, um, just this morning, I'm, and I, I, I'll try to be brief with this. Just this morning, uh, the National Security Advisor, and I don't know if it's the permanent one or the temporary one, um, as far as that goes. But he was asked a question. This is on CNN with Jake, Jake Tapper. He was asked a question. You know, do is there a, some to the point of is there a systematic racism in in, in policing? And his answer his answer was no. His answer was no. It's just of you know these bad apples, yep. and um, that that kind of you know uh, 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 you know you, you brought some of those things out in your in your sermon. But we have to white folks, if if you're, if you're listening to me, <laughs> we have to get past that individualistic thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and under, and and this is just a one-off, one incident, or bad apples. Those things I can't tell you. Or I got We got to get get the whole story. I can't tell you how much those things infuriate me yeah. as a yeah. black man to hear things like that because you're taking your experience and your perspective as though it's law yeah. and without even considering the perspective of 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 of, 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 of black folks you know there was um and I, I, I'll try to wrap this up. I'm pretty passionate about this, but there was this uh, um, um, this like uh, this picture on Facebook, and it was these three white people and, and, a, and, a, and a black dude, and it was like, you know, uh, what kind of America is it when I can't be safe in my house? Uh, and these are all referring to things that have happened to yeah. black folks as far as where they've been killed. Yeah. What kind of America is it when I can't, we don't feel safe to go to the store? Or what kind of America is it when my you know, basic human dignity, dignities are denied? And then the black dude says, my America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that's exactly what mm -hmm. we as black folks go through. So I need white folks, to, you, that, that's part of whiteness, is you have to be able to understand that your perspective is not necessarily the perspective of everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be open to hearing other perspectives so that you can take your perspective and like you were saying Greg make some course corrections mm. and shift that thing so that you can understand really what's happening here. Amen. That's good man that, 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 that's good. That, one of the biggest challenges I, I've had it is, is trying to um, uh, get some white folks and, and uh, the ones who stick around with them hills get on board uh, on the whole but to, to get them to see that white, you have a white perspective. Mm -hmm. That's a distinct perspective and it has a distinct meaning. The response I've sometimes gotten has been like, there you go, playing identity politics again. I don't have a, a white perspective, I just call it as it is. And as you see it. Well, that's the white perspective. <laughs> exactly. Because it was set up for you, by you, and it runs well, you know, for you. And that's your perspective. And so you normalize that for everybody. Yeah. And now you don't listen to the, please, I can't breathe. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Greg, you have been an ally, if I can use that word. Um, and you have been outspoken on behalf of the black community. You have sought out ways in which to um, educate yourself, like mm -hmm. we've been saying. Um, and so I think we would all say thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. you we benefit from that. Um, I don't, and that's not just a platitude. No, thank you, for real. But can you tell us, like, how did you get to where you are? You're white, in case people were unclear. <laughs> You're a white male with privilege. How did you get to where you are, to where you've recognized that, yeah. and then an, and have become an ally for those unlike you? Oh. Well, thanks for saying that. It was very sweet. Um, well, yeah, you know, I, I get, I did the core of it for me is, is this, I go with theology, but um, I, I, when, when I really learned how to get all my worth in life from Christ, uh, it's so freeing. I, everyone needs to get their life and worth and significance from Christ, the core needs. Because that means 
I, I, I don't need to protect anything. I don't need to defend. I, I, I don't need to have my perspective on anything to be correct. I, I, I'm, I'm okay in myself. And that can create a humility to learn. I, so if, 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 if I hear that there's white superiority, I, I remember in the 90s when I first started dealing with this, like, okay, white supremacy, I know I'm not a white supremacist, and, and the idea that that would ever influence me is just so offensive, and you know, all that. You just go into it, and, and, but when, when I really got, was freed, uh, getting the core word from Christ, I could stop this and, and, and now look at it. Well, maybe I am. You're allowed to, like, get honest with yourself. And then that can be, for me, it was just a matter of, like, get curious. And so I went to a lot of seminars and a lot of reading. And they were all positive experiences. Yeah. Uh, I would go two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. Uh, it, some of it was negative, but to keep, you know, to explore. I think one of the core things is I, I, my life, I, be, I realized, was quite quarantined. Mm. Um, you know, I, I grew up with a father who was really ahead of his time, I think, for a white guy on civil rights. He was really, you know... I've talked about that in the past. So I didn't have any kind of racial ideology, but I never saw my dad hanging out with any black folks. Um, and and, and I, I, I didn't have any black folks intersecting with my life in, in significant ways, in grad school a little bit, have friendships, but they didn't go deep enough to challenge the plausibility structure of the, the white supremacy system. Uh, it was really only when I began to develop deeper relationships. Um, it was a combination of learning and reading and all this, going to the seminars, but then developing relationships that, that with, of credibility where now you can begin to get on, that, really get on the inside of that perspective. A big thing was uh, when the O.J. Simpson trial happened, and, and I and Norm were just kind of becoming friends at this point. Norm Blagman used to be an African-American worship leader at Willowdale's Church, and... Um, to me, it was just so obvious that, that O.J. was guilty. I was like, come on, how could, you know, and I think like 80 or over 90% of whites saw him as obviously guilty, and, and like 80% of African-Americans thought at least there's a reasonable doubt. It's like, what reasonable doubt, you know? But, but Norm thought, absolutely, that cop could have planned on that, and he has a list of experiences that show that. Uh, that was a side of the justice system that I was not familiar with, and I wouldn't be because it doesn't affect me. Right. The system works for me, but it wasn't working for him, and so we've got to learn. You've got to be humility that leads to ending the lockdown, <laughs> uh, at least to not being quarantined, which can then hopefully develop a heart, and this is there's a lot of studies that show that white folks have, in general, have a hard, have a hard time empathizing, really empathizing with uh, people of color. Uh, and when, but that's what's got to happen when I can begin to see George uh, Floyd as my brother, my father, my, my, my son. When I can enter into that, that's when it, it's like now... I don't need a book to tell me to care. You care. You, you, the, the love is there. And, and now you, what can I do? And, and immediately you cut through all those, uh, well, you shouldn't have been passing a 40. You cut through that because it, it's, it's irrelevant when you love somebody. Um, to get there, that's, that, that's the ultimate game. But it starts with just getting life from Christ, humbling yourself, de-quarantining yourself, get, get out there, and, and then develop the heart. Start walking with people through this. Because um, it's not going to change until a sufficient number of white Christians uh, want it to change. Yeah. And then it will change. Yeah. Which means the fact that it's not changed yet is on us. And I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. On that, I think I, 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 we should end. Um, 
thank you guys. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. That was, that was good stuff. And I know it cost you something. In fact, you know, I, 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 it means a lot to me that, 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 that you're coming to a white, we're still 75% white, and, and uh, well, that, that presents its own challenges. It takes a lot of trust uh, to ask, well, will I be able to be me in this system, yeah. in, in, in this body? And I just appreciate you being here uh, so much. Uh, folks, pray with me here as, as we close. Zoom prayer, too. Oh yeah, I, I want to mention. Thanks, thank you, Shauna, for that. That after this, if you want to uh, pray about any issue at all, you may want to process some stuff. You'll see that there's a prayer Zoom line on your app or whatever, and so you just can push that, and, and uh, we'd love to minister to you, whatever the need may be. Abba Father, our hearts are heavy. Uh, it's been a tough week, it's been a tough morning, but we look to you. Our eyes are on you. You are our hope. Uh, you are at work. You're turning evil. You have a, you're a master at bringing good out of evil, redemption out of evil, and we're trusting you to do that with this. Holy Spirit, be working in lives and hearts, especially on the parts of uh, white pastors and white Christians, to end this, to have the heart to opt out of, to see the system as something that is not good for all. Mm. The truth of Jesus Christ is stronger and greater than any truth we might believe about any system, any ideology. We look to you, Lord Jesus. Yes. Pour out your peace on this in the state and on this nation, and now it's going throughout the world, but not peace that sweeps anything under the rug, Lord. The blood of Abel cries out, and uh, it must be addressed. It's never been addressed in this country, which is why it just goes on and on and on. Lord, raise up, raise up allies to bring an end to this. Our, my black and brown brothers and sisters who live in the same country that I live in, on the same level. Lord, we pray for the day where it will be self-evident that all people are created equal. Let it be, Lord. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. God bless you guys. God bless you guys. Um, be praying this week. Yeah, I, I would, I'll, I'll end with this. I would encourage you. We've had folks from Willow Hills going out and cleaning up, helping with the cleanup. What can they do? Here's one thing to start. Uh, get a broom and go out and see how you can serve. God bless you guys. See you next week.